Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an empowered and economical life. So you might be wondering why economical? Sure, empowered, but economical is kind of a weird word to wish for a life. It actually comes from the ancient Greek oikos, meaning home, household. And to be economical was simply to be a wise, frugal manager of your household resources. And if we look at our healthcare system as a giant household, it's not very economical. There's a tremendous amount of bloat. It's practically an extortion racket. And a lot of it has to do with the way prices are set in such an opaque manner that you can never actually tell what you're getting, how much it costs, what the value is, and whether there are other options that are available that would be better for you. And that's the topic of the first part of my conversation today with Emma Passe. Emma is a fire Crackers. She's the chief operating officer at ePowered Benefits, which is one of the renegade benefits brokers who's challenging this bloated and broken healthcare system. She's partnered with uh, David Contorno, who is so outspoken um, against the way things are currently done in the broker health brokerage system that uh, it's joked that he needs to go to conferences with uh, with bodyguards with protection. So I first met Emma a year ago at a healthcare conference, and she gave a keynote presentation. She brought down the house with her spirited, entertaining and incisive look at how health plans negotiate prices with providers. And you wouldn't think that the topic of referenced based pricing would be all that interesting, especially to the non wonks in the room like me. But Emma has a way of making it relevant and fun. And when you discover how you've been overpaying for healthcare all these years, you might become outraged as well as, as I was. So when I found out that Emma was going to travel to Charlotte, North Carolina for the day, for a day of meetings, I hopped in my car, drove a couple hours with my portable podcasting studio and met her for an interview. And I discovered, as you're about to, that Emma is not only brilliant and passionate about her work, but she's a great conversationalist as well. Over an hour and 37 minutes um, went, flew by. So this is a, quite a long podcast, one of the longest I've ever done. But there's really nothing that I want to cut. 
I just turned on the recorder and we chatted like old friends. And we talked about the healthcare system, the health insurance system, and how consumers and employers can start protecting themselves from this extortion racket. And we also talked about Emma's personal journey, which included losing 135 pounds, regaining her health, and also how she was perceived differently as a professional when she was thin, smarter, more competent, more powerful, more uh, influential. And what that says about our society and um, body image issues for women. And we rounded out the conversation by chatting about her initiative to empower more leaders, especially women and millennials, to speak their truths and step into influential roles in their organizations and communities. So fasten your seatbelt for a wild ride into the world of health pricing. And before we get there, two quick announcements. One is Wellstart Health is now offering pretty much every couple of weeks a new cohort, a 12-week intensive Reclaim Your Health big change sort of program. And if you'd like to find out more about that and join us, you can go to wellstarthealth.com slash program. Second thing is, quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and it's supported by those who can afford it. So if you want to become a patron, just go to patreon.com, search for Plant Yourself, and you can help support this mission. All right, let's get on with the mission. Without further ado, Emma Passe, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We're here in a beautiful... Uh, I don't know where we are. We're somewhere outside of Charlotte. <laughs> Mooresville, I think. Mooresville. My <laughs> GPS brought me here. I didn't, I didn't have to think too hard. Me too, except the GPS in my airplane. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so you, you had even less to worry about. I, yes. Yeah, I mean, statistically, yes. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Plus, yeah, I'm not worried about the other cars. I'm just worried about myself. <laughs> um, so we're we're here. I've, I've heard you speak at a bunch of conferences, and mm -hmm. you are I say a you call yourself a benefits broker, um, maybe consultant or advisor, but they kind of all fall into the same bucket. Yeah. Okay, and maybe that's a really useful distinction mm -hmm. to talk about. Like you know, when I think about benefits, I think the word broker comes to mind, but there's uh, different flavors of that. Maybe just start out by just describing like what what you do do. Okay, so I think the main difference between being a, a consultant slash advisor and a broker is, is just the being a little bit more robust in your advice out to clients. So when I think of a broker, I really think of someone who's fairly transactional in nature. And when I think of a consultant, I think of someone that kind of goes outside of that transaction and starts consulting on things that are a little outside of that circle. So I consider myself a consultant because I frequently find myself outside of the circle, whether I want to be or not. Um, and what I do is I work for ePowered Benefits. Everyone's, I think, pretty familiar with the firm. We are an employee benefits agency, which sounds pretty run-of-the-mill, but what's unique about our agency is that we only work with non-network health plans, and we build them for our clients. Um, and all of our clients are in a very open model that is completely transparent. And our main goal is to reduce costs to employers and employees and to improve the quality of care and the accessibility of care for employees. Okay. So with that as a background, let's let's uh, pull back to 35,000 feet and talk about health care. Mm -hmm. I saw on, on LinkedIn you were recently with Josh Luke. Yes. Uh, whom I've had on the podcast. And he, you know, we talked about the six words that killed the, the healthcare system. From your perspective, what does the American healthcare system look like and where is there room for improvement? 
Oh my gosh. Well, I have an interesting perspective because a lot of people don't know, but I was born and raised in the southwest of England and I am a permanent resident here in the US. I have been for many years, but I grew up in the national health system. So when I first came here to America and I was a teenager, the health system was completely foreign to me in lots of ways. I remember one of my first questions when I signed up for my first health plan as an employee somewhere was, hold on, I have to pay premiums and deductibles? and co-pays and I I remember questioning from the very beginning when do my benefits start what am I really paying for and <laughs> that reminds me of like when I when I was uh, left college it didn't occur to me that I would ever have to pay for like toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> I well because you take these things for granted right I grew up in a system that is it's fairly widely criticized over here, I think mostly through lack of understanding. But I grew up in a system where if you needed to see a doctor, you just called, made an appointment, or walked in and went to see a doctor. And there was not a whole lot of worry behind the scenes about what was going to come next, other than you were going to get care and hopefully get better. Here in the, the healthcare system, it, it's such a process. I was at a client meeting earlier this morning, and I was trying to go over at a, a very uh, member-focused level on how to engage in the healthcare system successfully. And I find myself explaining it in this 15-part series and expecting the average consumer to understand, and they simply don't. In terms of improvement, there are so many ways we can improve it. It's it's the, the way that we bill for care, the way that we, and we as a collective, meaning hospitals, facilities, providers, the way they're coming up with the cost of care that they expect an average member to be able to a afford and b actually pay and a lot of that is pushed back onto the employer as if we expect them to be able to afford and pay those bills and they simply can't so um, what our agency really focuses on is is not necessarily the the functions within the system but just simply where the bill starts and how big the bill is in the beginning and just trying to drive that down to a more reasonable level and that is actually where reference-based pricing kind of came into play all right so let's talk, let's talk about reference-based pricing and, mm-hmm. and I, I have you here because i've heard you explain this like to, <laughs> to a level that a teenager could understand yeah so before we get to reference-based pricing maybe we talk about what is commonly done mm-hmm. which is kind of the opposite so how, how like and the way you describe it, it it's clearly insane when, but we like we don't think about it until you. So could you like do that show? Like yes. So the way that it works currently, and, and I'll I'll start with the way that it works because reference based pricing essentially works in reverse, and, and it's fairly straightforward when you break it down that way. But the way that it works right now in a traditional PPO health plan model is P- PPO. I'm going to keep I'm gonna preferred keep. provider organization. Right. So that's if you're with you know one of the big health insurance carriers and you have a network of providers that have contracted with that carrier to say, we'll provide care to your members and um, we'll give you a, a discount. And I, no one can see, but I'm using air quotes for my discount there because the problem with that is that the starting price gets set wherever it wants to be set or wherever someone wants to, to start it. And then the discount comes off of that. Well, my the CEO of our company says something that really resonates with me, which is I'll sell you my car at a 99% discount as long as I get to start, set the starting price, right? <laughs> and that's kind of how it works in healthcare. The, the discounts become completely irrelevant if somebody else is setting the starting price way above what it should be. And that's how it works right now. Okay. So, so I'm an employee of a company. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have my health plan. The company has negotiated with a benefit broker or advisor or consultant 
for the plan for this year. Let's say they're going to go with Blue Cross. Mm -hmm. And Blue Cross has then negotiated, the, the local Blue Cross has negotiated with, let's say, in my area, like, you know, Duke hospital system or UNC hospital system mm -hmm. and, and all their network providers and they're, they've gotten some good deals for me. And I don't know in advance what I might need, but I'm just, you know, the, my employer is trusting that whatever I need is going to be provided at, mm -hmm. at, at some sort of good deal. And the problem is that the, the deal is a like 40% off right. of 40% off of what? Exactly. That's the question that we're all asking. 40% off of what? That charge starts somewhere that we can't really identify. Um, I, I mean, we can, we can sort of pick apart at, at a few maybes. But who sets the starting price? What justifies the starting price? And it varies from facility to facility, provider to provider, state from state, city from city. So your question is the most valid question I've heard anybody ask so far, which is a discount off of what? Okay. And it's that what, that big question mark that, that we're, we're trying to fight against without really knowing how that's set. Okay. So this would be like, let's say my employer has this benefit that I get 40% off of everything at Panera. That would be great, but right? yes. <laughs> but Panera doesn't have prices uh -huh. on the menu. Right. And... Every single Panera has different pricing. So if I get 40% off, they see that I've gotten 40% off, and then they go back in the back room and they calculate, okay, well, the soup, we, we want to make 10 bucks on the, on the soup and the, and the hollowed-out bread. Mm -hmm. So we're going to charge $16 and then give you 40% off right. of that. Well, uh, the bottom line is every business needs to make a profit, right? So even if you're shopping somewhere that has a discount or a bargain or a coupon, no matter how much money you get off of the starting price, chances are that business is still making a profit and otherwise they wouldn't be in business anymore. And so the, the discounting methodology doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because if you're a provider who needs to make $150 for every office visit and you've agreed to give a big carrier a 40% discount, well, chances are that you're going to increase your billed amount for your office visit so that even with the discount, you're still going to make the money that you need to cover cost and give you a little bit of profit. So the discount, again, with the air quotes, is sort of irrelevant. But a lot of people buy insurance based on the best discounts. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, and for me, as the, the end user of mm -hmm. this health, whatever, whatever the intervention is, I'm going to pay a copay, maybe, or right. maybe not. So I don't really care what the price is. I, might, I may never even see it. Like, sometimes I'll go in for something, like I had some blood drawn, and I get this, like, four-page uh, statement, like, three days later, mm -hmm. that I look at, and my eyeballs start bleeding, because I don't understand almost any of it. Right. Like, there are some dollar signs in there. I go, oh, yeah, I, I recognize dollar signs, but I don't understand the, the codes mm -hmm. or anything else. And... I, there's like seven columns of dollar signs, like who, get, who you know, what pay, what they pay, what my insurance, plan, what I have to pay, and basically, if it doesn't come with a return envelope, I completely ignore it because I know they don't need any more money from me. Mm -hmm. So, the, there seems like there's an incentive for whoever is giving the discount to raise the price as high as possible, since there's no accountability for it. Well, I think it seems that way, but that's sort of where consumerism gets lost because the member does see that. So if you're the end user and you have a $25 copay, but perhaps your service was a few hundred dollars, 
someone is paying the few hundred dollars on your behalf. And if you're a self-funded employer, it's the employer. And even if you're fully insured, the carrier is paying it. But at the end of the day, they make that up in premium. So even if you're a fully insured group, you're going to see those dollars translate into your increase the next year, right? And that does extend to the employees too, because the employees are the ones that get the deductibles raised at their renewals. They're the ones that get their contributions raised when their plan renews too. So while you don't see it immediately as a consumer, as a health plan member, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't really care how much it costs because I just have this $25 copay. But come renewal time, when your contributions go up 15, 16, 17%, because the company has to absorb the amount of those excess claims, you're going to feel it that way instead. So it, it's sort of cost shifting in a way. But, but there's, there's, two, there's two things going on that, that separate me. One is like, you know, pain of purchase. Right, like in the example I'm thinking about is if I ate at a fancy restaurant and every time I took a bite of my food, they they just gave me a bill for like fifty cents. <laughs> right, like each bite would be far less pleasurable <laughs> right. than if I just could eat and then just get the bill at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that if I'm, you know, if, if the the pain comes the following year with with renewals, mm-hmm. um, then I don't, I don't really feel it in that moment, and I'm not I'm not inspired to make a bit change. And the other is sort of the the tragedy of the commons, where like I want as much as possible for myself. And it's like other people who are causing the problem, not me. Right. Yeah. And again, I think that's where we're missing some of the consumerism on the employee level, not because they don't want to engage, but because it's not really clear to them. Um, And I, I think it can be really damaging to employees who have bigger costs because once you, your example was great. Most people encounter the healthcare system at the copay level out of their pocket, um, contributions aside, but if you're somebody who has a high deductible health plan, for example, where you have to meet your deductible before any benefits kick in at all, then the cost of a service might be more important to you if you have to hit a $5,000 deductible first. And I won't get on my soapbox about HDHP's high deductible health plans, but the intent was always to to encourage consumerism, right? If we if we make employees put a little bit of skin in the game, then they'll be better consumers. And unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Um, it's led to a lot of mismanagement of of chronic conditions because people simply can't afford now to engage in the healthcare system because instead of a copay, they have a deductible. Um, so, so people are being disincented from getting the. the- the cheap, relevant, appropriate care early until the point where now, okay, now like the, the, the primary care visit was, was $100 and the test was another 200 but that was going to come out of my pocket. Mm-hmm. But now we've reached uh, the stage where I, I need you know, renal care for 12000 so now someone else is picking up the tab? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. <laughs> See, I just, you know, like I have a high deductible plan that's like, you know, $10,000 for the family. So I just assume, you know, God willing, we will not need it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll go, I'll go to the, uh, you know, the Quest Labs and say, what's your cash price? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, if they really took the time to ask those questions and sort of dig in a little bit, they'll find that the way that the insurance billing really works and how things are paid for is not necessarily to their advantage. And not only that, but if we're going to get a little bit 
liberal in in thought process if you work for an employer that truly takes care of you and and you care about the people that you work with or the people that you report to if you have that kind of relationship then i think a, a little bit you should care about what your employer is paying for on your behalf right it's a lot of people a lot of brokers use the total compensation statement as a a reference to like here's how much your employer cares about you they're paying x amount for your health insurance and I think sometimes that gets lost at the member level, but someone is paying, whether it's you directly or not. But if the difference is if you're paying, you care a little bit more about it, right? Than mm-hmm. if somebody else is paying. If you're taking me out to dinner after this and you're paying, I might order a steak that's a little bit more expensive because I'm like, Howard's paying. But if I'm paying, I might order, you know, some sushi or something. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, we're definitely splitting the bill. <laughs> we're going By Dutch. The way. <laughs> I, I can't be responsible for your steak. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, so, <laughs> now I'm totally off track. Where was I? Steak. Uh, right. <laughs> no, I'm back off track. Um, well, so you said you, you didn't want to get on, on a soapbox about high deductible health plans, but was that the soapbox? It, I mean, it was part. It was part of it. Yes. I want to make, make sure we get the whole soapbox. <laughs> well, the the soapbox is that um, I'm I'm kind of a data geek, and I've I've worked in this industry for a long time, and uh, analytics and data has really fascinated me. And I think um, I have a fairly analytical personality, and I'm I consider myself a strategic thinker. And one thing that I started noticing about high deductible health plans a few years ago was that they they drive employer costs down significantly in the first couple of years. But if you take a look at the trend of a high deductible health plan, its utilization over a three to five year period, you'll see a couple of things happen. The, the cost go down because it's being shifted. The responsibility of the cost is being shifted onto the employee. But if you are providing that plan to a group of employees who are blue collar, low wage, don't make enough money to cover a $5,000 deductible and have perhaps some comorbidities or some kind of chronic condition, chances are that employee won't be able to afford to maintain their condition. And so what you end up seeing on a three to five year trend is the amount of chronic conditions in the population gets higher and they become more unmanaged over time, which when you think about the effect of that over a longer period, it's going to result in bigger, more catastrophic claims happening somewhere down the road because something wasn't managed appropriately. And that's an affordability issue. So, I mean, I'm trying to translate this into into terms I understand. It'd be like if I decide I'm going to save money over the next few years by not maintaining my cars. Right, so I'm not going to go for oil changes. I'm not going to do the fifty thousand mile thing. Um, and you know, every year I might save a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks. But like by year three or or four or five, depending on you know the make and model, I may have to end up getting a whole new vehicle because mm-hmm. I didn't maintain it. Like, is that not? You know, it seems obvious to me. Is that not obvious in in healthcare? Um. Great analogy. I'm totally going to steal it. I'll give you credit for it. But it's not. And what's crazier to me as someone who we kind of touched on it in the beginning as someone who went through a health journey. It's crazy to me that we don't take care of ourselves in the same way that we would a car, right? Because we, we do maintain our cars, we maintain our homes, we maintain our roofs. But when it comes to us, we push it off and push it off as if that's the lowest on our priority list. But you're right, because 
if you don't maintain your health, if you're not getting the medication that you need or the test strips that you need or the checkups that you need, ultimately that's going to compound over time and you're going to run into a bigger illness or a bigger event where now you have to engage your healthcare and you're forced to pay what you would have paid over you know, a longer period of time and chances are the bill will be a lot higher. Right. Although it, in, in some way it almost argues for the high deductible health plan because that's how we do car insurance, right? I don't, I don't, I don't submit a claim for the windshield wiper mm-hmm. that needs to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, like what's, what's the difference? I mean, maybe, I don't know if you thought about this, like psychologically around a, a car versus a body. Well, I, I mean, first the longevity, right? I mean, hopefully we're all going to live into our 90s, maybe to 100. I don't think cars last that long, although I've never, you know, <laughs> investigated that. Um, but yeah, Uncle, Uncle, <laughs> Uncle Freddie really took good care of his uh, his uh, MG. Yeah, you know? I, might still be out there. <laughs> I mean, I I think you know a, a lot more people once they kind of figure out that it is more cost efficient for them to just pay out of pocket sometimes, especially if you can get a cash price for something that's maintenance in nature, a lot more people are setting aside their health insurance plan. And what we're trying to do at ePowered is bring that ability to negotiate on a cash price basis into an insurance plan so that it can be leveraged and used and you can still have protection for those bigger things down the road or those emergencies. Mm. Uh, so so we, we, we started off on this to explain reference-based pricing <laughs> in, in comparison to what exists now. Yes. So what is reference-based pricing? Um, it is simply the way that we pay for healthcare. So remember I said right now in a PPO environment, there is a starting price that's way up to the ceiling, and then we take a discount off of the starting price. What we do in reference-based pricing is we use a reported reference price, and in most cases, most commonly, we use uh, Medicare prices. So this is data that's reported by providers to CMS every single year, and it's CMS? their CMS, the Center for Medicare. So okay. that's how Medicare sets their rates. They they rely on providers to report their cost plus a little bit of margin to CMS. And so they know the price by procedure for most mm-hmm. most procedures. And and they tell the truth. They have to. Yes. <laughs> Integrity still exists, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> but they they report the cost to to CMS and then we take those costs, we take the provider reported costs that we know have been reported by that same community, and then we mark them up. We give them a, a reasonable profit on top, and that might be 150, even 160% of whatever Medicare would pay for that. So we do it in reverse, where the PPO starts with a ceiling price and takes a discount. We start at the reported cost, and then we provide profit on top. That's essentially what reference-based pricing is. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the, the main difference is that with the Medicare cost, you know what it is in advance. Right. Yeah, that's the key is that we're using a price that's already been verified and validated. And then we're deciding based on a lot of data analysis generally, we're deciding what is a good tolerable profit margin that we can include for providers so that they'll be accepting of the plan. Hmm. So what this reminds me of a little bit is when I was a kid, my, my dad was uh, on the New Jersey Public Utilities Commission, mm-hmm. uh, which had to set rates for the utilities, which were in those days all um, 
monopolies, mm-hmm. and they were you know they were they were guaranteed profit by the government, but not unlimited profit. Right? Is it? Yeah. Is that like. I mean, yeah, kind of. There, there's similarities for sure. I, I think that. Essentially, when you break it down, and I can give my backpack analogy, although I feel like your listeners are probably a little bit sophisticated, so they... Well, they are, but I'm not, so... <laughs> I can give Tell you the, the backpack. <laughs> so the backpack analogy was, I was I was asked, it's been a while now, maybe a year ago, um, by a Portland company. I'm from Portland. I live in Portland. Um, they asked me if I could explain reference-based pricing so that a 10-year-old could understand. And I had the questions in advance, and I, I thought about it and thought about it, and I kept coming up with these responses that I knew no child would ever understand. Well, at the time, I had a 12-year-old daughter. I'd still have her. She's just 13 now. Um, and I called her down from her bedroom, which is just such a feat to get her in any common area at all. And I said to her, her name's Molly, I said, Molly, um, I just I want to explain something to you, and all you have to do is tell me if you understand yes or no. And it, <laughs> I usually do a good impression of her. I'm not sure if it'll come over well on podcast, but she 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 was agreeable. She said okay, and so I said okay. I started down the path. I said okay. I, let's say I get a sinus infection, and I go to the doctor, and after I've had that interaction I get a bill the bill goes to the TPA and I'm going on and my daughter's just like I'm out I'm out I don't know what you're talking about and so it took me a couple of tries and I finally I looked at my refrigerator and there was a back to school list there and I said okay okay uh what item do we need to get this was su- over the summer and uh she said oh I don't know a backpack I said okay okay backpack so let's say we go shopping for a backpack and we go to Walmart and maybe there's a whole wall shelves full of backpacks that are all about the same size. They all hold the same amount of stuff. Maybe they maybe they have different patterns or the colors vary, but they're all about the same and they're all about $10. And then maybe later we go walking down to the park. Maybe your friend shows up and she's selling a backpack. And the backpack is pretty cool. Maybe you like the colors and the pattern a little better than what we saw at Walmart earlier. But it's the same size. It holds the same amount of stuff. It's a backpack. I mean, your friend wants to sell it to you for $50. And I'm kind of keeping my daughter's attention at this point. And so I I go on to tell her, what we do in this situation is we negotiate with your friend. And we tell your friend, we know that there is a shelf full of backpacks that are being sold and consumed all the time for $10. And you're trying to sell yours for $50. So since we want to buy yours, or maybe in some cases in healthcare, we have to buy yours. We're going to start at our reference price of $10 where we know we can buy it. And then we're going to give you a little bit of profit for conducting the transaction with us. So how about we settle around 15 bucks? And I said to my daughter, does that make sense? And she very begrudgingly said, yeah, I guess, you know, but, <laughs> but that's essentially what it is, except we're talking about consuming healthcare, not off a shelf all the time, but in a doctor's office. And we're talking about using those Medicare allowable amounts, um, to start our, our negotiation price with a provider. Gotcha. So so when I think about the Walmart analogy, of course, my mind goes to you know sweatshops and, <laughs> and stuff like that, which which brings me to you know this whole concept of like healthcare burnout and, uh-huh. and like the, the market says, well, since doctors and nurses and other healthcare practitioners have such horrible jobs, we need to incent them to do them by 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 paying them huge you know the yacht bonus. <laughs> 
But that's not really like we know doctors. That's not what they want. No, no. I mean, we the the nice thing about e powered benefits is that we really work a lot more on the clinical side of the fence, just almost just as much as the insurance side, and that's sort of a new awakening to me because I've always worked on the insurance side but we speak with doctors we we talk about direct primary care and what we find consistently without a doubt is that doctors just want to practice medicine that's what they went to school for they enjoy working with patients they enjoy making people better I've interviewed Dr. Rick Rosenfield from Portland and and he sort of said the same thing is that they they just want to provide good care and make people better. And what's happening now is that they're spending more of their time dealing with submitting insurance claims, providing those procedure codes and medical records and case notes, and then arguing back and forth when they get their reimbursement, and then chasing down members for their portion of the patient responsibility that most of the time people can't afford. And so doctors aren't getting to do what they want to do anymore. Well, it's, yeah, it seems I have some doctor friends, and it seems like the electronic health record, which was supposed to rationalize care, mm-hmm. and, and it has turned into like this this stealth pipeline for doctors to turn into into billing administrators. Yeah, and I think more and more of their costs are going towards administrative headaches that they have to deal with now. And so they're spending more money on the staff that they need in administration to chase down the payments. And so the time that they spend with their patients is less than ever. And the time that patients have to wait to get an appointment is more than ever. Um, And I, I think direct primary care has a pretty big spot here in what the resolution really is, which is allowing providers to provide care to patients without the headache of insurance. And it's working really well. So what is direct primary care? Direct primary care is a collection of primary care doctors who provide care to members based on a flat, usually a flat monthly fee or subscription fee and they don't bill insurance. So regular doctors are generally fee-for-service, and direct primary care doctors, um, they generally create a practice where the accessibility is usually same day, next day. They tend to spend a little bit more time with their patients, and the money that they bring in is from that monthly cost rather than a back-and-forth with insurance. So, so is that more like getting paid for results as opposed to procedures? Not necessarily, no, because the, the, the rate for a DPC subscription is pretty static month over month, and they don't get paid anything additional. If you're true DPC, you're not going to get paid anything additionally. So Right, but, but still that feels like um, being paid for results in that you're, if you keep people well... You have to. You get paid for working less. Oh well, in that sense, yes, absolutely, and that's a really good point because if you do keep people well, then they they come in less, right? So you're picking up a subscription cost for not having to see as many patients. You're right about that. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it's like the the, the, the gym that hopes that nobody shows up, <laughs> except in a good way. But yeah, that's a fair right. assessment too. Right. I think. I mean, just in, just in terms of. Um, like I've looked at uh, different in, you know, parts of the medical system mm-hmm. where, like for example, oncologists can make money prescribing chemo drugs. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they prescribe through the roof. Mm-hmm. And like we see all these different examples where, you know, like the dollars for docs 
from um, ProPublica mm -hmm. that you can't help but being influenced by your incentives. Yeah. Well, and if you strip away those incentives and allow doctors to just practice medicine, you tend to have happier doctors, which generally translates to happier patients. There's a, a doctor, I completely forget his last name now, his first name is Jan, Dr. Jan, and I met him in Los Angeles just about a week or two ago, and he is a DPC doctor, and he was very open in his revelation that he makes more money now as a DPC doctor than he ever did in the traditional system. And really, exactly to your point, because all of his patients are paying a monthly subscription fee no matter what, whether they come in or whether they don't. And if he keeps them well and he does a good job, they don't. And so he gets to make more money, and that there is his incentive, and at the same time he gets to do what he actually wants to do. And what's exciting to me about that, given you know my um, company Wellstart, mm -hmm. is that we we want people to learn how to be well. And yes. right now, the big issue in lifestyle medicine is how do we get paid for things that you know, like talking to someone for fifteen minutes about broccoli and rice, <laughs> where you know there's no code for that. Right. We have to we have to play with the system. We have to figure out how to pretend that that's a real. Mm -hmm. code somehow or do educational systems as opposed to boy if they just come in and I see them for 10 minutes and and re-up their uh, Bayeda prescription or now I, I put them on uh, on some some new thing like that's that's responsible right like, you know I was, I was talking with someone uh, a cardiologist in Florida who was on the podcast who's saying like she gets a lot of pressure from her administration because she's not doing enough stents and bypasses because mm -hmm. she's making people well. Right. And it sounds like the DPC model, um, doctors get incented or at least not disincented from practicing good medicine, preventive care and whole patient care. Yeah, and I think we we tend to see that employees or or DPC patients tend to be happier as well. Um, I have engaged with DPC. I've talked about this before, but I chose to go down the DPC path myself. And I worked with Dr. Alex Lickerman in Chicago. And I really did it because at the time I had a need, a medical need, but also because I, I'm out here in the community talking about direct primary care, and I like to put my money where my mouth is. And um, I had, I remember our first appointment which was telephonically because he's in Chicago and I'm in Portland and he asked me to schedule like an hour and 15 minutes for our intake appointment over the phone and I remember thinking an hour and 15 minutes like that seems like a long time and lo and behold I think we were actually on the phone for more than an hour and a half and a lot of the things that he asked me health questions aside right off the front was really about my lifestyle and my feelings and what I do for work and what stresses me out and how do I sleep. And I've been in and out of the healthcare system fairly frequently as an adult. And that was the first time that I'd had an interaction with a doctor where I felt like he was legitimately trying to get to know me as more than just a patient, but as a person. Mm -hmm. And over the next few weeks that he and I conversed for actual medical issues, every time I spoke with him, I felt like I didn't have to re-explain who I was every time I needed to, to get something from him as a, as a provider because he had already taken the time to get to know me. And I think a lot of people have that exact same experience with direct primary care, that they spend more time with their provider actually building a relationship 
that helps the provider treat them at some point down the road. Mm, yeah, it's almost, it's almost like if uh, the current system is like a, an auto shop, I keep coming mm-hmm. back to that metaphor, <laughs> that all the mechanic is being paid for is like turning you know, screws and nuts and, and swapping things out as opposed to actually then getting in the vehicle and seeing, does it actually drive down the road? Does, mm-hmm. it, does it pull left or right? Does it sputter and stop? Right. Um, you know, I just, I just had, did a podcast this week with Dr. Wayne Jonas, who was um, head of the um, NIH Office of, of Alternative Medicine, and, and he wrote a book called How Healing Works. And he talked about, like, basically 70% of healing comes from people's meaning and context around their what what they care about. Right. And you know, we we think of that as like placebo. Right. But but really what you know the technical stuff of what the medical profession does is, is maybe 20 25% mm-hmm. of of all of healing. So by, by uh, Alex Lickerman asking you all these questions it's it's probably also connecting you with like what you know what are your reasons to be healthy. Right. Right. And I think you're right about that. I think you, if it is a placebo it's a a very powerful one. Yeah, and, and, you know, like the word placebo is like denigrating a little bit. Like, right. oh, you know, crazy person, it's all in your head, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, oh, I have this power. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like somebody, somebody tells Superman that he can't fly. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, bef- you know, before I could fly. Before right. I, <laughs> like, ah, it's all in your head. Uh, yeah, fair. <laughs> There's like, there's like this Jewish joke about, um, you know, un- Uncle uh, Benjamin who um, goes crazy and thinks he's a chicken. And they ask, you know, the family, how come you don't take him to a to a doctor to get his head, made, you know, made straight? It's so embarrassing. They go, yeah, it is embarrassing, but we could use the eggs. <laughs> I have a Jewish friend that would love that. Okay. Steal it too. It's not, it's not mine. Um, uh, so the next thing I wanted to to get to get an understanding of, and this is so, um, I was on LinkedIn this morning reading um, your most recent article, which is I think from uh, about uh, two months ago. Uh, basically about you know negotiation versus litigation mm-hmm. and like the like a lot of that is inside baseball for benefits people so I right. try to understand <laughs> it but you talk about balance billing yes and balance billing seems to be the thing that people throw out as a reason why um, reference-based pricing is a terrible idea yeah they and they do it with such frequency it's it's becoming less and less surprising um so what what is balance billing well why why is it used as a uh a cudgel against reference-based pricing and why is that wrong well let's go back to the ppo versus rbp thing right so we got a big starting price in the ppo and then we have a discount off of that starting price and then the rest gets paid between an employer health plan and a member well, that amount, that, that 40% that the provider has agreed to write off, that, that gets written off. There's a contract in place that the provider has signed and said, we won't charge this to anybody. We won't assess it to anybody. In a reference-based pricing environment, we don't have networks. And so we don't use contracts with providers. We allow people to go to any provider they want without a contract, without a discount arrangement. So... If a provider sends in a bill for $1,000 and perhaps the health plan has assessed via its reimbursement level, you know, 150, 160% of Medicare, that perhaps they're only going to pay, I don't know, $2,000. Wait, what was the starting price of the bill? (laughs) $1,000. Sorry. Sometimes I do $1,000 and sometimes I do $5,000. If the bill's $1,000 
And uh, maybe the plan's going to pay 250 of it. And maybe $50, $50 of that is member responsibility and 200 gets paid by the plan. Well, there's an amount in between, right, that doesn't get paid. And there's no contract in place that says the provider is required to write that off like there would be in a PPO environment. So that amount between what's billed and what's actually paid can be billed back to the member. The reason I remain slightly surprised that people use this as a reason to not do it is because the rate of balance bills is actually fairly low in a in a well-managed RBP plan. And I've argued this with a couple of other RBP people before. And my opinion is if you're setting your reimbursement at an amount that benefits providers. You're not trying to rip them off. You're not trying to pay them less than cost. You're actually paying them cost plus profit in tolerable, comfortable amount. Chances are your provider is going to accept that 98% of the time. Now, when we get into the bigger bills and into the bigger hospital systems, they tend to dig their feet in a little bit. And that's where negotiation comes in, where the member receives this balance bill and then our negotiation team, something like a Six Degrees Health or an AMPS, will step in and some TPAs do it too and start TPA third party administrator sorry okay. <laughs> um, they'll step in and they'll work with the provider to either get the balance written off or negotiate it down to a lower amount that the health plan would be willing to pay um, I think so so I'm still I'm um, I'm not quite getting it I don't know if there's a backpack example for balance <laughs> billing which is kind of what I'm looking for but you know so so let's say the friend has this amazing backpack mm-hmm. and and it's got um you know like RFID pockets and all this extra stuff <laughs> your daughter needs and but it's you know so it's $500 and and it's going to be billed to you right you know, okay. you're the one who takes care of the backpack yeah. and then you discover that you know you, uh, no Molly I was only going to pay I was going to pay at most 50 right so now you're on the hook for the other 450 or Molly like, would be. Yeah, Molly. she's the consumer yeah. in this in this example, right? So Molly would be if the provider chooses to go that route. Now, now would Molly know that it's it's that much? To the, how much the provider billed? Yeah. Which, Not until they build it. No. Okay. So no one really knows what the price of healthcare is until the bill gets sent to is, an and, entity. Uh-huh. And is that because uh, someone comes in for care and you don't know what they need until, oh, we did this x-ray and it looks worse and you know, this is a serious thing, so we better get you in. Like, well, where, where, I, where's, like, I'm trying to figure out what's the, what's that, that balance, like, how predictable is it and where does it come from and why does it need to exist at all if we know the price is up front? Well, I think predictability doesn't occur in the traditional model at all because the price can be whatever the price is. But remember, in reference-based pricing, we are paying based on a reference reported price, but that's not what the providers bill on. The providers still bill whatever amount they would normally have billed, and there's no consistency or rhyme or reason to that, generally speaking. So a balance bill is essentially the difference between what a provider billed and what was paid by a health plan and a member. And generally, there's a delta. Because even in a traditional model, if a provider bills $1,000, never is a health plan and a member between the two of them going to pay the full billed price, usually. Maybe dental insurance might be an exception to that. They tend to, some, some dental plans pay bill charges. Um, so it's still, it's still a game. It's, like we're, it, absolutely. We're going to throw out a number, and we're going to see how much we can get of that number. Yep. 
That's uh, you. You're breaking it down in really simple terms, and it works. It's essentially we're going to throw this out, and hopefully someone's going to pay us as much of that number yeah. as possible. Well, that, I mean, that sounds like regular life. Like I go, to, <laughs> I go to a car, you know to a car dealership, and yeah. they're going to throw out a price, and if I pay it, you know, someone's going to need resuscitation because they've never <laughs> seen it before. I'm supposed to negotiate, right? But in in and right. in, right. in healthcare, we don't. We should. We 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 are in some of our plans now, but. We should be negotiating, especially because we know, like, when you go buy a car, I don't think I've ever met anyone who has paid the sticker price on a car before, right? It just, it the, the starting price is generally inflated so that negotiations can occur in those types of transactions. And that's essentially what we do in reference-based pricing plans when we're talking about balanced bills is... The provider wants the difference. They want that money that they build for as much of it as possible. And if the health plan has already paid their share, then the only person left to bill for that is the member. And the member, the difference then between getting a balance bill in a PPO plan versus our RBP plans, because keep in mind, balance bills happen in those plans too. If you go out of network, if you're in a Blue Cross plan, and you have a surgery and your anesthesiologist is out of network as they so frequently are, you're gonna get a balance bill from that anesthesiologist for the same reason. They billed a certain amount, your plan paid a low out of network reimbursement, and now they can bill the member because they don't have a contract. Mm -hmm. Well, in that environment, the member is responsible, period. There's no advocacy, there's no one that's gonna negotiate unless they do themselves. Um, And in these plans, balance bills, when they do happen, which is relatively infrequently, um, a team of people at either the repricer level or the third-party administrator level will step in and work with the provider so the member doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were just at that uh, World Healthcare Congress mm-hmm. in, in Washington, D.C., and I'm blanking on the name of the speaker the final morning um, who was giving all these examples of hospitals taking advantage of, of poor people. Right. Dr. Marty McCary? Yeah. 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 He's wonderful, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, what amazing... Yeah. Uh, presentation it was, but just you know, putting up people's faces and then talking about how like the hospitals they've got to make their money, and the the weak link mm-hmm. is to go after these individuals. Um, so in in it with a with a regular PPO out of network plan, there's no one on their side. Right, and I think that's what people miss sometimes because these plans, when we implement reference based pricing plans, there is some disruption and there's some unfamiliarity to the member about what they have to do. Because quite frankly, in these kind of plans, there is a role for them. There is a a portion of the work that they have to do. Now it's fairly administrative and straightforward, which is just if you get a bill that doesn't match your explanation of benefits, then you need to do something with it. And usually it's just send it somewhere. But there's something that they have to do. And if if they don't do it, it, it can become really overwhelming at the member level to know what to do mm-hmm. but in a ppo environment there there's nothing you can do at least over here yes there's a couple steps that a member has to take but it gets taken out of their hands and off of their shoulders and off of their hearts and their minds in a, in the other side of the fence when they get an out of network balance bill it's too bad you're not going to get a carrier a uhc a cigna a blue cross an aetna no one is going to advocate for a member who went out of network and received a balance bill, period. That's member responsibility, and they have to figure out how to pay it. Mm. And, and it sounds like, uh, I don't uh, do, do you sort of help employers educate their employees? Because I, I just had an experience with, with my, my 23-year-old daughter 
who um, discovered that you have to register your car every year, <laughs> which when she got a a ticket for like having a you know old old registration sticker, and she uh-huh. comes home and she's like, "You failed." To point <laughs> like you didn't teach me how to adult to this thing. And like, I, way to I, I go, was thinking, Dad. <laughs> I, and I was thinking about it, like, you know what? She's absolutely right. Like, this is like, I, you know, it, it didn't occur to me right. that someone wouldn't know that. But you know, that, that employees are not benefits professionals. They nope. like, we we get this stuff in the mail all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like being educating people to navigate the healthcare system, which in a sense, I think, is what. You know, this episode of the podcast might, you know, partly be for to help people understand, um, you know, how to how to make things better for themselves. Yeah, and I I love that idea, and I wish more people were engaged in it because, quite frankly, it's it's frustrating. And if they felt the frustration, or if they were angered about it, or emotional about it, I think that they would be more willing to participate in some of the fixes and some of the solutions of it. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it takes standing in front of a group of people and educating them on everything that's wrong to get them a little bit riled up and motivate them to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to participate in this anymore. I'm going to do a slightly harder thing or a slightly more complicated thing and contribute to the solution. And oftentimes, as long as the education has been mandatory for the employee as long as the employer says you must come to these educational meetings and we can get in front of them and tell them here is your three-step process we don't generally see a whole lot of pushback or or problems occasionally we have providers and facilities that are just not willing to play and not willing to negotiate but if you look up the rate of how many of these actually go to litigation it's pretty low. I mean, we get through the negotiation process relatively unscathed most of the time. Mm-hmm. And in our models, now, a, a good differentiator is that technically in the balance bill, the member is responsible for the balance bill. Because again, there's no contract between the provider and the insurance payer, whoever that is, the healthcare payer. Um, so technically, the member is responsible for that bill, but none of our plans allow for the member to actually take on that responsibility. We talk to our employers, we make sure our employers know that these things are going to happen and if we have to negotiate and we have to pay a provider a little bit more than we would normally, that has to come from the health plan and we still need to keep the member protected. Mm. So it's, it sounds like that this, I mean, th- this is such a sort of esoteric part of the healthcare system that people, you know, like we think about like, you know, like curing cancer and coming up. Like, mm-hmm. we, we don't think about the, 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 the deep implications of just how payment happens right. as determining the system. But it seems like this sort of plan also allows employers and their employees to be on the same page. Yes. As, as, oppo- as opposed to an adversarial relationship, which we see in so, in so many organizations, mm-hmm. like employees kind of hate the company, the company kind of hates the employees, and they're they're both like uh, necessary evils. Well, let me give you an example, right? So I'm in North Carolina right now. I'm from Portland, Oregon. That's where I live. So I I flew out here to do a meeting with one of our clients this morning. So um, we were out in Salisbury. I think that's how you say it, Salisbury, North Carolina. (laughs) And we met with a bunch of members. Now, this is a fairly large group, but there was a, a little pocket of members that had a balance bill. And as a percentage of their population, definitely 
less than 3%, I think, of all the population and less than 1% of all claims as as an organization. But I went out there to talk to them and we started the conversation with with them being frustrated at the process because they didn't know what they were supposed to do. What is my role? What am I supposed to do here? I just have bills and I don't know what to do with them. And as we went through the conversation, number one, education cleared it up almost immediately. Here's what you have to do. Take yourself out of the middle. But one of the things that came up in the conversation was the reminder that this plan has had reference-based pricing. This is their third year now. And for the last two years, their contributions and their deductibles have been cut in half at every renewal. And I can't even tell you a consultant or a health plan or an insurance carrier agent plan that has been able to cut their costs to their employees and the employer in half ever. And so these employees were reminded today that if if they wanted to, if it was really that painful, they could go back to UHC, but that their contributions would be three times more than they are now, and their deductibles would go back up to the starting point, which is two times more than they are now. And nobody in the room wanted to do that. Everybody in the room recognizes that getting a bill and sending it into an entity that's going to work on it on your behalf is of much higher benefit than going back to a traditional model where their costs are going through the roof. And so I'm just trying to compare this to like the normal thing. Like I, I once had an actual job. Where <laughs> I, I worked at a, I worked at a school, and so every year we we brace ourselves for the renewal, mm-hmm. and it was always you know, fifteen to twenty percent hike from you know it was either Cigna or Aetna mm-hmm. or Blue Cross. We kept switching right. every single year to try to get the worst, the least bad increase mm-hmm. our broker would valiantly negotiate it down to you know 12 to 15 percent this is what you're talking about where you're cutting it in half yeah and and mostly because of the reference-based pricing but not just the reference-based pricing that's the method in which we pay less for healthcare. That's the only way to get around it is to remove the network and and you have to replace it with something, right? There has to be some kind of payment methodology if you're going to take away the network aside from cash pricing, I suppose. But what it really does, what reference-based pricing does is removes the network and all those contracts. So now, in this case, the client I went to today and many others that we manage, now we don't have a network or a carrier to answer to. We don't have to follow their rules or their guidelines. And so now we can get into not only paying for care through a reference price, but we can go directly to providers and pre-negotiate care for elective procedures we know people are going to have. Or we can go to a hospital system and negotiate a direct contract with them for all members of a health plan. So it's like when you're, when you're doing network um, PPO stuff, it's like, okay, for this year now there's monopolies mm-hmm. and we have no leverage as opposed to we're going to go shop around and we're going to look at quality data and mm-hmm. decide who gets good outcomes and then ask them if they want our business and what are they willing to yeah. do to get our business. Absolutely. So, so like it, gives, it gives the really the, the end user power that they would never have had before. Yeah, and it, it is the main driving factor to lowering healthcare costs, quality aside, which is half of, of what we do. But if we took out quality, reducing costs to a health plan by 40% in most cases 
allows employers to pass on those savings to the employees, whether that's reducing contributions or deductibles like the company I sat with today. But we have another company in New York who did the same thing. They're in their third year and they reduced contributions and reduced deductibles again for a second year in a row. And it's it's a wonderful place to be as a consultant who's been doing this for a while because there's been very few meetings in my career that I've sat in on or presented on where I've actually presented a massive cost decrease in this industry. It's almost unheard of until now. Mm -hmm. So you guys are a a successful agency, but you're not a big agency. Mm -mm. Why, why are you not like, why isn't everyone coming to you? Well, sometimes, some days it feels like everyone is coming to me. (laughs) Um, It depends on the day. I think there's a little bit of stigma associated with the disruption that we're causing, frankly. It's, It's scary, and it's new territory, and people worry about what will happen to their paycheck and their commissions. Now, our CEO is David Contorno. Everyone knows him very, very well. And he just happens to be... A little bit brash in nature and he's fairly unafraid in his approach and so he's successful and a lot of people come to us because they've heard him speak they've heard him go through his here's what's wrong with the system well, I've, I've, I've heard people at conferences muttering that they don't understand why he doesn't walk around with bodyguards <laughs> he does he has me yeah <laughs> i'm a weightlifter i got him it's okay right um, <laughs> only one of charlie's angels <laughs> That's all I need. It's all he needs. Um, no, he does. I, I'll, yes, he's um, he's a target sometimes for sure. But I think those who target him, quite honestly, are other brokers, other consultants. And I think it comes from a place of defense because if you are a consultant, an advisor who has listened in on one of David's talks about commission, for example you might feel a little bit defensive about the fact that your entire paycheck is based on carrier commissions. Can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. So if you write um, some policies with, I don't know, Blue Cross, Cigna, whoever, generally um, consultants get paid as a percentage of the premium that the employee pays. So if you're selling a group, but you know the employee-only premium is $500, well, the broker might get 4% of the total premium spend for that group as their compensation for selling that. Well, there's a couple of conflicts there. The first is the seller is now paying you for something that the buyer is purchasing and you're supposed to be representing the buyer. So there's a a bit of a conflict there. Being paid by the seller to represent the buyer is... This is like real estate agents... Except real estate agents, I don't think, are allowed to do that. (laughs) They're not, in most cases, real estate agents aren't allowed to represent both. And if they do, they they have to be very clear about that. And the second conflict is that every time you deliver one of those increases you talked about, 16% increase this year because of whatever trend or whatever they want to justify it with, well, that commission goes up too, right? Because if you're making 4% commission on premium and the premium went up 16%, you're getting a pay raise every single year for delivering a poorer result. So so you might be conflicted if you feel like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to negotiate really, let's say a broker ignores that and like, I want to re- negotiate really hard on behalf of my client and they discover that, oh, I've just negotiated myself out of $30,000. Yeah. 
But I mean, the good consultants will do that. The good there are good consultants yeah, you, out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you don't want a system in which case, in, in, in which the the good thing to do mm-hmm. is the the thing that's disincented. Right. right? And you don't you don't want to have to rely on people being saints in true. order to represent you properly. Well, and it it becomes difficult for the agent because, and I don't blame agents or consultants for this at all. And I think the reason that David gets a little bit of slack on this is because they recognize that it's really not, it's it's not the problem of the consultant necessarily, because a lot of consultants are in positions where they can't avoid that. For example, in, in the larger group markets, you can mess with commission a little bit. You can make it higher, lower. You can charge a PEPM per employee per month commission instead of the percentage of premium. But when you get into the smaller group market, the, the rates are set and the commission within the rate is set already. And there's no moving it around or being flexible. So I think we can give him a little bit of slack in the fact that he's right to call out the fact that the system incentivizes consultants to do a worse job. Now, that doesn't mean a consultant is going to purposely do a worse job, but it does mean that by default, they're going to get paid more if they do. And unfortunately, some consultants that work in the smaller group markets can't get away from it even if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's basically telling people that they're taking advantage of their clients whether they want to or not. Yeah, whether your intention I, is to or not, unfortunately, that's the the insurance carrier has made it so that they are incentivized again whether whether they think they are whether they knowingly do so they are incentivized to have costs increase every single year and they can't just like create a model like yours well they can if they're in a larger setting yes but when you again when you get into small group it's it's already set within the rate and so you can't do anything about it but in a large group yes you can and what we do to we 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 take our compensation directly from the client so we either come up with a PEPM that per employee per month cost based on the client if they're more comfortable with that or we come up with a flat fee every month but there is no client that exists in ePowered that takes commission that is not reportable, transparent, or comes directly from the client. And I think that's what's really unique about our agency. Aside from all the disrupting that David does, you know, outside of that, that's pretty unique, I think. Right. And see, for, for me, as, as I think about sort of business incentives, I don't trust myself at all. I don't think I'm a good person. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that I'm any, you know... I mean, I think it's dangerous to think of it as like, I wouldn't do that. I, right. would be, I would be above that. So I make sure that, like for my podcast, I don't take any advertising. You don't? Okay, why? Right? Because I would be a whore. <laughs> right? If, if, you know, if someone came, like if I, let's say Vitamix right. sponsored the show, I wouldn't have Dr. Esselstyn who tells people not to drink smoothies because we need to chew our food. Right. right? Like, well, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, you know, upset Vitamix or, or whatever it is. <laughs> But I've heard Vitamixes are pretty good. Yeah, but I'm the, I think they're great. <laughs> but the point is, I, I wouldn't, I would, um, I would compromise right. if I felt like I was dependent on that money. Absolutely. And so, like, I have a coach training program to train health coaches, and I, I believe in the program. I think it's the best program out there. Mm-hmm. And when people, I, I do enrollment interviews, that people pay twenty five bucks to, to have this conversation, mm-hmm. which will get, uh, you know 
rebated if they decide to do it and um, they get refunded if they decide not to do it. Mm -hmm. But I say I, I sell pretty hard. I say I, I insist on a 100% money back guarantee for the entire program if you're not happy with it. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, I, would, I, like, I know I'm going to sell hard. And it would be the wrong thing to do if I, you know, if I got them in and they didn't have recourse. And it's not because I'm a good person. It's because I know I'm not. <laughs> it's because you're aware that yeah. those things will trip you up, right? Yeah. It will make you stop and pause. But the problem in, in insurance in this industry is that some consultants don't have a choice. Some consultants don't know that there is an alternative way. And it's sort of always been this way. And people tend to have that perception like well it's always been this way so that's just how it's going to be and what david has created at epowered is him essentially standing by himself now with a couple other people but in the beginning it was just him standing up by himself and saying there is another way and i'm going to figure out what it is and i'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do rather than the thing that's always been done all right you know this reminds me of this movie i saw recently i don't know if you've seen it. it's called high flying bird no. Oh, you got to check it out. I think it's a Netflix original. Okay. It's about a, um, a sports agent uh -huh. who who figures out that you know his players are are being screwed essentially by the NBA. He's he's representing a young uh, black kids right out of college, or or you know out out of first year of college, mm -hmm. and NBA you know all the owners are these like you know rich fat cat white guys, and. He basically wants to change the system to like, you know, stream live on YouTube to get the players to start their own league to, mm -hmm. like, you know, this kind of disruption. Yeah, that's essentially it. Just a far more boring subject matter. <laughs> that's all. Well, I hope not after this conversation. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, there's a, co a couple other things I wanted to just, um, you know, bring up. One, one is you have had your own quite amazing health transformation mm -hmm. you, you feel comfortable talking about it a little bit yeah I do actually I um I lost quite a significant amount of weight it, fairly recently I lost 140 pounds so I started out tipping the scales at about 300 pounds back in 2015 and I have been obese my most of my life I started out getting chubby when I was a teenager and um you know blamed it on development just developing early getting mm -hmm. chubby got that that um baby fat is what my mom used to call it um and then i just <laughs> i just got fatter and fatter over time and eventually i got to 300 pounds and in may of 2015 this is where actually david contorno and i disagree he thinks that wellness plans and, and, and health coaching is ineffective in terms of ROI. And I, I would agree with that from a financial perspective. However, I disagree that they don't have an ROI. I think the ROI is personal for a lot of people because I engaged with my health coaching program that I had at the time that was provided to me. Now, it wasn't very robust. It was just access to a nutritionist and, and someone who could help me figure out what the heck I needed to do to even start down a path of losing weight, which seemed very overwhelming at the time. Um, and I essentially spent a considerable amount of time, about a year and a half in total, Tracking my calories, um, eventually tracking macronutrients, going to the gym pretty consistently, and lost I lost 100 pounds the first year, and then I lost another 40 pounds the second year through a weightlifting program. And it's been, well, now it's 2019, so I guess I've been maintaining for a couple years now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you talk about, like, health coaching possibly being ineffective or ROI um, irrelevant. 
Um, and I think that might that's true for a lot of people mm-hmm. who don't change. Absolutely. Right? Like, yes. Like the problem with ROI is not that. Gosh, you know, we're doing this this wellness program, and people are going from three hundred pounds to one hundred and sixty pounds, mm-hmm. and they're reversing their you know. But we're still not seeing a financial. It's like you're not seeing people actually lose weight and get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think there's merit to that discussion actually because I I disagree that there's not an ROI. I think it's not in it, it can't be bucketed into your health plan spend. Because chances are somebody who is unhealthy is probably not getting the health care they need to get healthier anyway. So the idea that they would be consuming any at a maintenance level is unrealistic. Right. So then they're not taking their car in at all. Right. right? They're so not. Now, now they're all not. Sudden, now all of a sudden you give them education yes. and tools on car maintenance and now mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're getting oil changes and you're seeing, <laughs> yes. you're seeing this, their spend go up. Yeah. I, I think that is such a good... It's such a good observation on your part, and it's. I think it's absolutely true. And I think what we need to start seeing is that health spend on the maintenance and preventive stuff go up so that we can avoid the unhealthy, catastrophic illnesses that come later as a result of not going in for your maintenance, right? Just like the car analogy. And for me, health coaching was key because when you're starting at 300 pounds and you've been that way for a while... The, the idea of losing 25 pounds, let alone 140, is pretty far in the distance. And it seems really unlikely that, that you could achieve that. And so just for me, just having access to somebody who could help me break down the math, because I fully believe, and I've said this over and over again, weight loss is simply a math equation. That's all it is. It's calories in, calories out. No matter how you do it, that's what it is. And at the end, you're going to output what the, the answer is. But I needed somebody that could help me figure out what the equation was, what needed to go into it in order for me to get that output. And that and health coaching truly set me off on the right path. So he and I agree on a lot of things, which is why we're business partners, but we disagree on wellness and health coaching. I think it has a significant value in an employer health plan. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope WellStart gets to prove it. I hope you guys do too. And you know what? I just I've just started learning about your immersion programs, and I'm pretty excited about it. I hope you'll talk about that at some point. Um, yeah, we talk about it. Yeah, I okay. just um, I, I interviewed Olivia last week. We got together. Nice. So we talked about kind of the because we went to these two conferences in the same month span. One mm-hmm. was the, the World Healthcare Congress that we, you and I. Uh, saw each other at and the other was a plant-based prevention of disease conference and like we feel like we these two worlds need to know each other yes because there's such overlap like you know the you're working on getting health care to cost less mm-hmm. and we're working on getting people to require less health care right but you're also doing that yeah so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of overlap, and and the way we're we're working also gets people to spend money more efficiently on better things. Yeah, there's a lot of aligned intentions, I think, because, and you're right about that. We we do have overlap in that we focus on getting employees to a higher quality of care, but if we could capture employees before that interaction needs to happen then they won't need the care at all. And that's our hope, right, is that they're just going in for their preventive maintenance and staying well. Right. And the, you know, the other thing we're working on is, you know, our chief medical officer, Dr. Sarai Stancic, just released a documentary called Code Blue, mm-hmm. Redefining the Practice of Medicine. It's largely based on her experience 
becoming an MS patient, mm -hmm. being on these this debilitating cocktail of drugs for a bunch of years, never being told that she could address it through lifestyle, mm -hmm. and the fact that so many physicians um, don't believe that radical change is possible. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of people who would say to you at 300 pounds that, look, just you can't do it. Like, look at the biggest loser people. Like, mm -hmm. they gained it all back. It's not, it's not maintainable. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that, you know, you described yourself earlier as like a numbers geek and how, like, the psychological rift between how good we are at our jobs mm -hmm. and how bad we are at our health. Yeah. When, <laughs> like, our, you know, our coaching model is essentially a business model and we, like, people have all these strengths around... You know, I get um, I get evaluated on results. I set plans. Mm -hmm. I create you know objectives and key results. I have key performance indicators. Like I can kill kick ass at work, but like, oh my God, weight loss—it's such a mystery. Mm -hmm. When you're you know you're I think you're you're ninety nine percent right about calories in, calories out. Yeah, I would say the, the one percent I would add is um, calories burned. Through the process of eating, right? So there's like foods have different. You know, it's not. It's your body responds differently mm -hmm. and produces more thermogenesis to certain foods than others. Yeah. Um, but essentially, yeah. I mean, you know, and, but, and leaving like health aside, like there's lots of unhealthy ways to, to get them too. Mm -hmm. um, there but, are, yes. <laughs> right, but if you if you look at you know if you just take your skill at numbers and you needed a health coach to kind of help you tap into your own natural abilities mm -hmm. to and, and some other some people are not numbers people but they also have natural abilities right. that aren't being tapped and like to me that's what i see as the the secret sauce of health coaching is getting people to you know basically look at the bright spots in their behavior and in their capabilities and applying it to this world of, of essentially um shrouded in shame i think you're right about that and I, I want to go back to an earlier comment you made, which is sort of the placebo comment, but it, it has value here because I think that regardless of my ability with numbers and data, knowing that it's a math equation, I think a lot of my struggle in reaching out for help while it's trying to figure out the equation is also just feeling powerful enough that I can actually tackle it. And I, I think we're going to talk about the empowered leadership thing too, and it kind of segues in, but... It is about finding your power. And a lot of people talk about having willpower or having the motivation, not realizing that those two things are not going to exist very often for yeah. you. And you exactly. sort of have to create them, right? I People ask me, the most common question I get is, how? How did you lose weight? I Well, I just, I did it. I, I did the thing. And I prioritized myself. Amen. I, Amen. I just did it. and that, And there's no secret to that. There's no, I'm not going to rattle off a diet pill name to you. I'm not going to tell you like I did a certain diet because I didn't. Um, and I think once people have that feeling of strength within them, whether it's fake in the beginning or not, they, they need that little bit of power behind them to just do it. See, I was, I was talking about this actually on the podcast about a month ago with Josh Lajani, our other part, uh, you know, my business partner who, mm -hmm. with whom I joined Wellstart uh, a little over a year ago. He was uh, 420 pounds. So, you know, I showed, I gave you a copy of Sick yes, to Fit. Yes, right? yes, so I got he's, it. He's the guy, and, and he was talking about 
how like he unabashedly embraces power. Mm-hmm. Like he likes to lift weights because he feels powerful. Absolutely. I, so many of us shy away from like I don't want to be powerful. Mm-hmm. Like powerful like like that feels irresponsible. <laughs> and just like the, and I love what you said like the difference between willpower and power. Yep. That you, know, you don't have to will yourself to have it is the thing. You can embrace it and use it at any point you choose to. It's just having the ability to choose to do it. And so many people are waiting for that big reveal. Like one day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to have the willpower. And I really want people to understand that that's unnecessary. You have it already. You just have to not be afraid to use it. So let's let's segue into uh, you know empowered leadership and women, yeah. women in leadership. I think I think you know power is less culturally acceptable for women to yield yes. wield than than men. <laughs> you know we're seeing yeah. we saw it in Game of Thrones. If you've been, <laughs> I'm not. Well, I, I'm the only person on earth that doesn't watch Game of Thrones. I, think. I don't. I don't watch it either. But I can't. I like. I read newspapers, and so I'm reading yeah. stories like it's like it's real. Um, and, and, and I saw, I saw a, a conversation with like Elizabeth Warren and, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez mm-hmm. complaining about how the women didn't get to be top leaders. Yep. But uh, you know, it's certainly part of our, our zeitgeist. Yes. Um, so talk about what what what's what's your work around um, that? Well, it actually came. It started as a point of frustration, if I'm honest. Uh, and it's not necessarily just for women. It's it started out that way. And I'll tell you how how this came about. I've been feeling. Um, frustrated because I go to these, I go to a lot of conferences, whether I'm speaking or, you know, e-powered is being represented or I'm just attending. And I notice more and more that people are putting together these tracks that are designed just for women. And this happened at the conference that you and I saw each other at a a few weeks ago. And when I start digging in and looking at why are there tracks just for women and what are they talking about? And I'll, I'll (laughs) probably gain a little bit of Um, criticism here from women when I say this, but a lot of these tracks seem to be focused on us highlighting the segregation between women and men in our industry. And I don't know how that is helpful. I've been a fat woman. I've been an entry-level administrative assistant. Um, I've been all these things that would have set me back in one way or the other. But the only way to bridge that gap, that that exclusion that we feel, women versus men, is to simply just sit down at the same table as a man and be able to hold your own there. And I don't have a problem doing it. In fact, I feel like I have, as a woman, as a 35-year-old executive woman, I feel like I have all of the substance and the experience and the contribution at a table full of men, women, young, old, whatever. But I feel like women often feel like they're in this this weaker position, like they can't speak up or they can't take a spot at the table. And I, I created Empowered Leadership at, at first for women to just try to bridge that gap, not just to bridge the gap by complaining that there is a gap, but to bridge it by engaging with men on their exact same level and not being fearful of it, not feeling like you don't have a place there. But then I realized that this doesn't apply to just women. This applies to people who are young. So a lot of th- a lot of times I hear that I'm too young to be a chief operating officer. I'm 35. Sometimes it's that I'm a woman. Sometimes it's that I'm from the West Coast and therefore I must be this liberal hippie of a person, right? People are just predisposed to making 
assumptions about people based on some of their demographics. And I realize it extends far beyond women. It extends to minority groups, groups of color, young, old. And so I created Empowered Leadership because I wanted to create a community that stops talking about the gap and just starts bridging the gap instead and putting themselves in positions that are maybe uncomfortable for the first five or 10 minutes. But at some point in that first interaction, you find your power and you realize that we're all we're all doing the same thing and we all one way or another have the same amount of knowledge and the same ability to contribute regardless of male female 35 65 so i don't know quite where it's going yet i hope that we will have um, a nonprofit that is educational that motivates people that inspires it's going to be a sharing community i do really do sound like a liberal hippie now when i'm talking about it but <laughs> that's the idea I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> i don't either i um i just i wanted to create an environment where like, yeah interested in other people succeeding yeah like, and i i really am that's so countercultural of you we should be putting other people down well stopping I'll, their necks. I'll let you in on a secret howard i as a woman who was 300 pounds for a long time. I'll, I'll say a few things that, that might make me sound a little pretentious, but I promise it'll, it'll, it'll humble itself out at the end. I have always been intelligent. I've always been really driven. I've always been a good speaker. I've always been really good at my job. I've always had these qualities that I have now that are now far more appreciated and focused on and people are more um, quick to point them out now that I'm not 300 pounds. And it is not coincidence to me that my career has taken off in the same amount of time that I have been a thinner woman and mm-hmm. perhaps arguably a more attractive woman, right? And I was talking to a girlfriend of mine about this the other day and I told her I don't think it's coincidence that those two things have happened simultaneously. And I was inclined initially to blame other people for that for looking me over because maybe I didn't fit a mold that they wanted me to fit or I didn't look a certain way or my image didn't work regardless of my intelligence. And while I was talking to her, I realized that that might be partially true, but the real truth is that I took less risk and I took less chance because I felt like I wouldn't fit into whatever mold I had assumed someone Mm -hmm. had set for me beforehand. So if my career has taken off in the same period of time as I have been a thinner, more attractive person, it is largely because I've chosen to view myself differently in this body, in this image, and I'm no longer afraid of what other people will perceive me to be. And I think I want to get that message across to other people that if you're, if you're doing that to yourself, know that you have to place some of that accountability back on yourself too, and the only person that can adjust that is going to be you. This is so deep and complicated, and there's there's so many responses I have, and about forty percent of them will get me into trouble if I don't think really carefully about them. But I mean, well, just, you could edit anything out. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't edit myself. I, I just let my I just let my listeners tell me off. Um, but no, I mean, I mean, one one thing I'm thinking about is um, I was reading up on different um, charities because mm-hmm. um, Josh and I have this. Uh, have, we're starting some swag from sick to fit, and we, yeah. didn't, we didn't want to make money at it. We just wanted to 
um, make it real simple and just donate. So, mm-hmm. so I was looking at uh, Girls on the Run, uh, which yes. is this organization, uh-huh. and I was looking at some of the other sort of organizations for empowering girls. And one of the things that struck me that I'd never thought about before was that all this talk about like when people come and tell g- young girls, "You can do anything a boy can do." It's actually a disempowering it statement, is. and it's yes. like, "Holy shit! How did I not see that?" Right. It is. You're so right because they can do anything they want to do. It doesn't have to be compared to somebody else. And you know what else? People get caught up in this in weight loss, too, or in in bodybuilding. So I, I got into weightlifting pretty heavily when I was losing weight at the end of it. And I constantly found myself comparing me to you know some woman on Instagram that had <laughs> obviously been bodybuilding a lot longer than me. And I think we teach our young girls that that's okay, that that behavior is okay, that you can you can be an image of somebody else that you really can't be because then you just wouldn't be yourself. Right? right. But it's also that like you can do anything a boy can do. Mm-hmm. You keep hearing it and it's actually telling you like, well, we don't think you can, so we have to keep repeating it. Like you don't, you don't keep telling somebody something that's true. Like you, right. could, you know, you could drive a car. Like mm-hmm. I do, I do drive a car every day. <laughs> yeah, but you could drive. <laughs> but you know what else? You never hear that statement in reverse, right? You never hear. We don't say to our boys, "You could do anything a girl could do," because there's certainly a few things that women do that elude right. men frequently. Well, so, so I want to pick up on that because, and here's where I do get into trouble, is. Um, so I totally get that part of the agenda of feminism is to break down all the barriers and to, mm-hmm. to create equal opportunity. And as as a liberal hippie, <laughs> I look at our society that has been you know male dominated for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and I'm like, is is that the best we can hope for? That women come in and fuck it up just as bad as men have, or can we <laughs> ask of women to bring something better? To the table, like, I don't, and I don't know, like, <laughs> in terms of like being a benefits consultant, like, is is there a a woman's outlook, a feminine feminist approach mm-hmm. that can not just like I'm the same as all the men at the table, but I bring something else that's valuable that's been missing. I think you you hit the nail on the head, and. This is exactly why, and David will tell you this too, but the reason that David and I decided to do this together for e-powered benefits was because it, he he says it best, that, that I am the yin to his yang, right? Whereas he will stand up in front of a room full of people and just straight to the point, straight to the truth, and it can sometimes come across as a little bit cold because it's very factual in nature. Whereas I tend to look more at the reactions of people and how their body language is instructing me on what would be best or what would feel best for them because I recognize that people only do things or people are only incentivized to do things mostly when they feel a certain way about it, right? So when I said, when we talk to employees, we want to get them a little bit pissed off about the state of the current system because we know if they get a little pissed off about it, they're more likely to want to do something about it. And so I think I I provide something that's a little bit more comforting. And I think women do in general, but often that is mistaken for just that, that we just come in and we like give warm hugs and we, you know, give a little smile and everyone feels better. But I have a lot more to contribute than that. So I think I would, if I was just being broad 
what I really want to get out of empowered leadership is allowing women to feel like they do have something to contribute that can't be found necessarily in men, just like they have something to contribute that we could never emulate either. But that doesn't mean that what they have to contribute is less valuable than what men do. It just means that it's different, but it still has a place and it should have a place and hopefully it will in the future. All right. And that involves not just mentoring and role modeling for women, but advocating for men to recognize mm-hmm. the value. I could not mentor a woman to save my life. I have to tell you, I a lot of people think that I have my shit together. I don't. I am the quirkiest, most awkward. I'm clumsy. When I walked in here to do this podcast with you, I spilled my coffee on my foot and my sandal has been wet ever since. I didn't notice it. T- a typical male response. I, I did I, not notice your pain. But I, I, I am far, far from perfect. But I think that's that's when we're most teachable, right? And that's when we're most apt to teach is when we yes. recognize that I don't have it all figured out, but maybe if I tell you what I know and you tell me what you know, when this all gets mashed together, we can have some really good buttery mashed potatoes and come out of this with a little bit from you, a little bit from me, and we'll both be a little bit better when we exit. And that's that's really what I'm trying to do. And I don't think it's me mentoring people because I frankly don't think I'm qualified but it's a community that's willing to all chip in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, it reminds me, my, my friend Peter Bregman has a leadership uh, academy, mm-hmm. and the leadership skills that he teaches are very much about empathy mm-hmm. and about emotional courage. Yep. And like, you know, emotion is a feminine word in this culture. Right? Yes. Men aren't supposed to show it. Right. But we've seen, you know, I've, I've been to his workshops and I've read his books, and very much like you see like the really powerful male leaders are mm-hmm. the ones who are in touch with the qualities that our culture bifurcates as feminine. Yes, yes, you're so right about that. Um, the other thing I was thinking is, I don't know if you, you know the work of Claude Steele, who's, mm-hmm. um, I, think, I think he's at Columbia University, a psychologist. He wrote a book called Whistling Vivaldi, and he's a black guy. He went to University of Chicago and you know, in his 20s, mm-hmm. and he noticed that people would cross the street. Like they were scared. He was like this, you know, strapping right. black guy, and he'd sometimes, you know, he'd wear like you know sweats and like t- you know things that they would associate with a dangerous person. Mm-hmm. And he noticed if he would walk down the street, if he would whistle like the Four Seasons, then all of a sudden, like, oh, you're one of us. <laughs> and he wrote. The, he did a lot of work on I think um, th- threat stereotyping, mm-hmm. which is if you think if you are aware of a negative stereotype about your group, that will actually interfere with your performance. Yes. And I fully agree with that. So there's like all these studies like women taking or girls taking math tests doing worse than boys mm-hmm. until they're told a total lie that this test has been calibrated so that women do as well as men. Mm-hmm. And it was the same test. Right. And of course and they did just as well. <laughs> or yep. or black kids at Princeton being given a um, a test either told that it's an ath- a test of athletic ability or a test of strategy. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. Right. And they do better when it's a test of athletic ability than yep. strategy. And that um, that part of the part of the work of empowered leadership is to get women or whoever to recognize their own sort of wheel spinning around the the stereotype threat yeah. so they can show up as their full selves. Yeah, and it really takes a community, I think. I, I've started interviewing 
women mostly. I have a couple men in the in the fold too. But one of the rollouts of this organization is going to be to highlight the the thing that you've struggled with the most and how you overcame it. And I've been collecting these stories from women and one of the common themes in all of them is that they had something or someone that provided them some level of support or encouragement to move on, to to be better. Um, and I, I can't tell you how much importance that has, as, especially as a woman, maybe. You know, I have a couple of girlfriends. We refer to ourselves as the tribe. You know, there's just a few of us in there and we all the kind of people that you can call up whenever you want and they're mm. going to be honest with you and tell you the truth and if you're being crazy and if you're having an emotional breakdown um, and I have a couple guys in my circle like that too but I think the idea that you have a community of people that you can lean on so you don't have to feel inadequate because you don't know something or you don't know how to approach something there's a woman in um, she's in Los Angeles her name is Dawn McFarland and she works um, with the National Association of Health Underwriters and she is somebody who completely um, reinvented herself and her profession after she had a really bad experience at her current employer. And she went through something, she went through an experience that, that really set her back and made her feel inadequate as a woman in, in, her, in her job. And it, it affected her to the degree where she ended up losing her job and she had to, to reinvent herself. And for whatever crazy reason, she chose insurance a few years ago. And um, I laugh with her and I tell her, like, I don't know why you chose insurance, but I'm glad you did because now, even though she's fairly new at this, she's, she had a community at the time behind her that encouraged her to say, we know you don't know how to do this. We know that you're not probably going to be good at it for the first six months to a year, but we're here to give you as much help as possible. And some of those associations, Nahu being one of them, is really notorious for providing not just networking but that comfortability around someone to just be helpful and again I'm going to sound a little bit liberal in nature but it's really about just feeling like someone's got your back even if it's small if it's big if it's weight loss if it's work related if it's leadership related if it's just the fact that you're feeling inadequate as a woman in a, in a room full of men in the insurance industry just having that feeling like someone's got my back and I'm going to be able to fall over a little bit and get caught. And I hope that that spreads a little bit wider. And it sounds like a foo-foo idea, right? But it's how most of us get by in life. When you think about what happens when you encounter something that is of personal tragedy to you as a man, I'm sure you go to somebody. There's somebody in your life that provides you that unwavering support, right? Well, I mean, the, the idea that we human beings can do without it... Mm -hmm. You know, is is insane, but it's a part of this culture that yeah. we're, we're atomized. I know, and that's you know, like men. I don't. I know a lot of men who don't have friends. I do too, actually. It's crazy. Right? I don't know what I would do without my friends. <laughs> like you know, to me, that's that's as, that's as insane as expecting to be healthy, eating only junk food, right? Or, or breathing toxic fumes or, or drinking mm -hmm. polluted water. It's not how human beings are are designed to be. I agree. And so we, you know, yeah, we have to, you know, the default, just as you know, your default was to eat the crap that was all around you mm -hmm. until you made a decision yep. to do something else. Our default is to 
be on our, be on our phones, mm-hmm. be go home and binge watch things, and not have community. We have to work hard right. to create the kind of community that's sort of the birthright of every human being in a, in a traditional healthy society. Well, and I think we can circle this back to how we started this entire podcast, which was on insurance, right? Healthcare, health plans, reference-based pricing. If you think about what we're really trying to do is change the entire healthcare system. And there's no way that a David Contorno or an Emma Passe can do that single-handedly, no matter how brash he is or how comforting I might be. Hmm. It takes a community, and that's what Health Rosetta's doing. That's what the Health Wealth Certification does with Josh Luke. It creates a community that provides strength in numbers and encouragement and support so that we can have a bigger, more lasting impact. So as with leadership, as with a, a feminine approach to professionalism, changing healthcare also requires that same group, that same coming together in order to really affect any change at all. Right. And to take it to kind of a historical perspective, you know, I mean, insurance and healthcare are two of the like the least liked industries. <laughs> yes. And yet, if you think about like what's the root of insurance, it was to make sure that everyone was taken care of. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, so we're going to spread out the risk so nobody is left behind. No, nobody is isolated. Like that's that's such a beautiful impulse. Except it fortunately hasn't turned out that way because we ended up morphing from from that ideal to putting barriers in place where benefits were intended to be, right? We went from let's pull together to provide a protective layer for people who are in their most vulnerable state when they're sick or when they're injured. But then the cost of that became so unmanageable that we started putting barriers like deductibles in place. Like, okay, well, we'll give you a benefit, but only if you're willing to put up this much first. So... As with most things that start out well intended, it becomes yeah. a little murky along the way. Yeah, I mean that's you know it's true of medicine too. Like, yes. like you know first first do no harm. <laughs> medicine is all about doing harm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, look at you know like religions all started out beautifully, and most of them are like you know busy yeah. cutting each other's heads off. I think yeah. there's a you know, but I think there's value in going back to first principles. Mm-hmm. And like you know, for me, the when I think about the potential of insurance. As, as something that that holds all of us as community, mm-hmm. I th- you know, like it sounds like that's kind of what you are pushing towards. I and, am, and it's a, you know, it's 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 much more than just you know all these acronyms and initials <laughs> and, uh, and and spreadsheets. It is, it is. I really, I truly believe that as a collective, we can do so much more, and. There's a lot of people in the industry that criticize David more than me, for sure. (laughs) Um, But those people even have a place to contribute to. Like those people who've been doing it the old-fashioned way or the traditional way or who have been incentivized in the old system also have a contribution to make to the solution. Yeah, there's a quote. I'm going to get it a little bit wrong. I just I actually texted it to Josh uh, like two days ago. I, just, <laughs> oh, I might uh, pause for a second, see if I can bring this up because it was so powerful and beautiful. Um, I love it. It's by it was by Martin Luther King. Here it is. You have no moral authority with those who can feel your underlying contempt. That right. is pretty powerful. So isn't, isn't that great? Yeah. 
You have to text that to me. I, I, I could will, use that. I will do that. Yeah, I, yeah, I need that as a tattoo <laughs> before too. I go out and, and like piss people off. Um, this has been such a beautiful, amazing conversation. This is Thank this you. is why I wanted to do. You know, it's great to do it in person. Yes. Like, it feels, Thank it, you for for driving all this way. I I yeah. I told you when we started. I I just assumed that if you're in North Carolina and I'm in North Carolina, yeah. we'll be close by. But right. apparently, that's not how that works. <laughs> no, I grew up in New Jersey, where it would, where it would have been more true. But, uh, no, it's a beautiful ride, and it's great to um, to just experience your your energy and and passion in person. How can people reach you, either both for uh, for the for the benefits and for the empowered leadership? Uh, probably both best on LinkedIn. So I'm fairly active on LinkedIn and then the Empowered Leadership LinkedIn page is up. Um, I expect it to be built out a little bit more, but all my contact information is there. Okay, you better um, spell your last name for Passe, us. Passe, P-A-S-S-E. Like the, it's it's French. It's a French word, but it's a German mm. German family uh-huh. name, which is sort of weird, okay. but that's for another podcast. Great. Okay. <laughs> so Emma Passe on LinkedIn, and then yeah. people can follow up and uh, and find out all about what you do professionally and what you do as a, as, as a give back to the community yeah. for our leadership. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Cool. This has been really fun. Oh, for me too. Thank you so much. Of course. All right, dear listener, you hung on till the end. Good for you. Good for, good for everyone. This is, uh, I think, really important stuff. So if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, the easiest way to do it is simply leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to find out more about WellStart Health and one of our upcoming uh, cohorts, our uh, 12-week program to get you fit and healthy, check out wellstarthealth.com slash program. And check out the show notes for today's episode. I've got links to Emma's stuff, to a couple of the books we talked about, and that's at plantyourself.com slash 327. Wow, 327 episodes. That means there's uh, over 300 archived episodes at plantyourself.com. If you're new to the show, you can go back and dip your toe into any of those. And make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. I've got some great interviews coming up in the next few weeks that are in the can, and I'm really excited about sharing them with you. So in garden news this week, the garden is hopping. We are getting more squash than we could possibly eat. I'm uh, looking for ways to, I, when I used to um, use oil, I would make these uh, like zucchini muffins that were basically oil and sugar with a cup of zucchini in them. It, it wasn't that efficient in using the zucchini, but it sure got a lot of oil and sugar into my system, which, uh, which made me happy in the moment and miserable later on. But uh, now I'm looking for ways to... Uh, Process massive amounts of zucchini in a whole food plant-based way. Made a uh, zucchini lasagna with no noodles, just uh, sliced zucchini. And I'm going to be working on zucchini curls and um, sautéed zucchini in water and broth. And you got any ideas, just uh, drop them in the comments and uh, you can help me out. Also, we're now getting about a half a cup of blueberries a day. The raspberries and blackberries were a disappointment this year. The grapes look like, barring some unforeseen thing, like we might get a lot of grapes. It'll be the first time in several years. And we've also put fences around the sweet potatoes. Something was, was chewing up all the leaves, so those are protected now. And our, we've got almost a, a, a seven-and-a-half-foot fence almost all the way around the garden so we're really looking forward to being able to uh, share more of our bounty with humans and uh, a little less with groundhogs, rabbits, and deer. 
In running news, my foot is feeling better. Uh, I did go and play a hard practice of Frisbee on Saturday, and it felt terrible all over again. So I am going to give it absolutely give it two weeks of no running, just walking, did three miles today, did four and a half miles yesterday, just walking in the morning, no running, no pounding. And luckily this weekend, I'm off to Florida for the uh, American College of Lifestyle Medicine Roundtable. So I will not have to choose between Frisbee practice and protecting my foot. So I'm going to keep walking. I will be on the beach there in uh, Naples. So I'll be walking on sand and hopefully that will continue my rehab process. Okay, thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this show. And you can check out willridenauer.com for more of his gorgeous West African chorus music. And of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself Podcast. All right, that wasn't a great start. Thanks to all you Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Thank you also to the pop filter in front of my microphone that keeps me from popping too many peas when I say Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara, Wendy, Tammy Black, Amy, Good, Amanda, Havilah, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Felden, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Ray Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Don Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Guy Lacerre, David Donning, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio Carol Ajitati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmuth, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, to plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Mary Blum, Teresa Coble, Shell Rootless, Julian Watkins, Brito O'Connell, Brian Sharon, Jan Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Easy Tuesday Walk, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davies, Avilal, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen. Cherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leland, Piet Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cards, Ian Bishop, Bill Elf, Gutter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moultridge, Adam T. and Kramer, Nancy Sheldon. Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gullitz, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, and Diana Goldman for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift.
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selbig, Air Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cybert, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Petty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cartson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashor, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>